thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. They fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Amen. Let's just pray again and ask for God's help. Dear Lord, we just want to thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who comes and takes your word and speaks to us. And so give us ears again that are attentive to your words. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers as well. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you ever heard any of these sayings before. Look after number one. The most important person in the world is you. Make sure that you treat yourself. These are sayings we hear all the time, probably sayings that we've had counseled to us maybe or we've counseled to others. We hear them on Facebook and on social media and in the world's. And we like these kind of sayings because they fit very well with our own selfish desires and our own selfish little worlds. Because we naturally think about ourselves above anyone else. Think about it. How much time do we take in our days to think about ourselves? How much time in our weeks do we take to think about ourselves? We're always thinking this, aren't we? Thinking, what are my plans for the day and for the week? What am I going to do with my time? What about my future? Are my wants being met? Are my dreams being fulfilled? Have I had enough me time this week? What will I get from church this week or in life? That's the kind of things that we say, don't we, to ourselves and things that we think about. However, our passage here that we just read encourages us to flip that question. 
from how am I doing to how are we doing. From how am I doing to how are we doing. I would contend that that is the question of the Bible. (laughs) Not just how am I doing, that's individualism. That is what our Western society has taught us to think. But the Bible asks us to think about a bigger question. How are we doing? Not what can I get from life, but how can I serve and love those around me? And this passage actually reflects the great, second greatest commandment. First is love the Lord your God of all your heart and your mind and your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll notice even in that command, Jesus doesn't say love yourself. He doesn't say look after number one. He doesn't say treat yourself. He already assumes we do that naturally. <laughs> he already knows that we love ourselves. But what he says is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this passage looks at t- three different categories. You might have noticed that in the text. And basically shows us how selfish living destroys us and destroys our relationships around us. So we've got three categories of people we're going to look at. Firstly, we look at the oppressed. Second, we're going to look at the envious. And thirdly, we'll look at the lonely. So those are three categories we see in Ecclesiastes. The oppressed, the envious, and then the lonely. So let's get stuck in. Firstly, the oppressed. If you look at verse 1, Solomon is basically looking across the world and he sees all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And I want you to notice it's not the word oppression. It's the word oppressions. He highlights here what we already know. We live in a cruel world, don't we? A cruel, cruel sin-filled world. We see that locally, where we are. We see people extorting money through high-interest loans, drug dealers targeting the broken and getting them into cycles of debt again and again, prostitution, single mums. Nationally, we see sex trafficking. We see abortion. Internationally, we see... uh, 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 Children making clothes next to nothing. We see wars, don't we? We see dictatorships. Switch on the news for five minutes, for one minute, and we see we live in a sin-filled world, a cruel world. And Solomon says the worst thing about oppression is this. There's no one to comfort them. There's no one to comfort them. There's no one to dry their tears at night. The woman who's abused at night... No one else knows about what's going on in her life. There's no one to comfort her. No one knows. He says in verses 2 to 3 that it's better for the oppressed to be dead than to be alive. It's better that people are not even born than see the evil that is done on planet Earth. Ecclesiastes is a book of truth. As Christians, that sometimes seems, we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it feels like, well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? Should we really be thinking these things as Christians? I thought we were supposed to be joyful. I thought we were supposed to be hopeful. I thought we were supposed to triumph. Here's the thing, even as Christians, doesn't mean that we live in this happy bubble 
where we ignore the troubles of the world. Some people try and do that, don't they? <laughs> That's not how we are supposed to live as Christians. We have to be real about the world that we live in. We have to be real about the communities that we live in. We have to be real about the churches that we worship in. I don't know if you knew this, but there are more people who are slaves today than when slavery was legal in the West. Women taken from their homes, I don't know if it happens in Canada, but it happens in Europe all the time. They're promised a new life in the United Kingdom. They get over here and they turn out and they are prostitutes for a pimp. We see children abused. There's a horrendous story in the news a few years ago in the UK of a 17-month-old child, just 17 months old, who was tortured and killed by uh, his mother and his stepdad. Over an eight-month period, the little child suffered 60 injuries, including a cracked rib and a broken back. Can you imagine the pain of that 17-month-old child as the parents were supposed to look after them and love them, beating them around the, ba- around the place and around the house? There's no one to dry his tears at night, to weep himself to sleep. Sometimes we look at the world, we read stories, maybe there's people that we know in our lives who've gone through these things, and we think it's better if people didn't live. They have to go through one tragedy after another. And what I want to see here is the Bible is real about suffering. The Bible is real about suffering. The Bible is real about the pain of the world. When Job went through his, his suffering in the book of Job, he said this in chapter 3, Why do I not just die at birth and come out of the womb and expire? Why do I have to go through all this, Lord? When the psalmist was going through a very dark time in Psalm 88, he says this at the end of the psalm, Darkness is my only friend. So we have to be real about suffering uh, in the world, real about suffering in our lives. As Christians, we are to look at the brokenness of our world and we are to weep. We are to weep for the brokenness of our world and the communities that we live in. That's exactly what Jesus did. He saw the terrible consequences of sin. And he groaned and he wept and he had compassion for the lost Matthew 9.36 says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The world groans around us, doesn't it? The world groans and so do we as believers. We feel it intensely at times. We witness it. Some of us have been oppressed ourselves. Some of us might be going through oppression right now. And we know that Jesus Christ makes all things new. We know that Jesus Christ has given us salvation and life and hope. But we live in the now but not yet, don't we? We live in the now but not yet. Now, there's only two places in the Bible there's no suffering recorded. First two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. The rest of it is full of sin and misery and suffering and death. That's where we live. As one author said, we live in the middle of the book. Don't live at the start. We don't live at the end. We live smack bang in the middle of the book. And so what's the answer as Christians? What's the answer as believers we see the oppression of our world? Well, notice the author doesn't give us an answer. Doesn't give us an answer. 
No, you need Jesus. Of course, that's what people need. But there's no Sunday school answer here. He wants us to look at the oppressions of the world. He wants us to see it. And he wants us to feel it. Can't just turn off the TV and shrug our shoulders. Can't just say, that's the world. Lead them to it. We're going to be in our little Christian bubble over here. That's not how Jesus Christ came. That's how God the Father treated the world, sent his son into the world to die for sinners. Book of James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The compassion that Christ has for his people, the compassion that Christ has for his world, we're called to have as well as believers. And one thing that the Bible calls us to and that we can Uh, we can do in response to the oppressions of the world is this, we can pray. We can pray. You know, after Jesus saw those uh, people harassed like a sheep without a shepherd, that's what he says to his disciples to do. He says, pray. And what does he say pray to do? Pray that laborers would go out into the mission field. Share the gospel and plant gospel-centered churches. That's what we're called to do. Pray. Pray that laborers would go out. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Send people out. See the neediness of the world. See the brokenness. See the oppression. And pray that the Lord will send workers out into the mission field. That's one of the reasons we set up 20 schemes in Nidris. One of the reasons you probably set up Mile One Mission. Because you see the brokenness of your nation. We see the brokenness of our nation. We know the only answer and the only hope in the world is Jesus Christ. But how are they here? Unless someone goes and tells them. Unless someone goes to these communities, lives in them, and proclaims the gospel and starts churches. How are they here? How will they know? How will the oppressed be comforted? Unless they know the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can comfort us in our oppression. So we need to be moved by the brokenness of our world. Don't just turn the TV off. Don't just think that's just down the road from me. I'm going to ignore it. We have a hope. Do we not? Do we not just sing of it? Do we not have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not the best news in the world. Let's get out into the world. Let us pray. Let us preach. Let's plant churches. So that's what the Lord has called us to do. So first we have the oppressed. Secondly, we have the envious. Do you see that in verse 4? I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Solomon says the primary reason people work hard is because of envy. People are driven by competitiveness instead of just enjoying what they do. What is envy? Let me uh, explain with an example. I have a toddler and I have a four-year-old. My four-year-olds can be happily playing with their toy over there, enjoying it, no problems. And then my two-year-old will come into the room and start playing with another toy. And what does my four-year-old do? 
She's not content with the toy that she has in front of us that she was happily playing with the last half an hour. She has to leave her toy and play with her toy and snatch the toy of the two-year-old. That's envy. I want what that other person has. And basically, we are all toddlers in adult form. (laughs) We want what other people have. That's what drives many to work harder and harder and harder. We want what others have. We want more money because they have it. We want a bigger TV because someone else has it in their home. We want the latest iPhone because that person looks cooler with it. Deep in our hearts, we want to be noticed and to be the focus of attention. And that desire is capable of driving all that we do. And we all feel it. We'll see it in the workplace, we'll see it in our own hearts, we'll see it in the workplace, and we'll also see it in the ministry. Do you know that envy often drives people in ministry, not the Lord Jesus Christ? We want bigger buildings, we want more conversions, we want spiritual growth in the church, not for the glory of God primarily, but because it makes us look good. And so what we do is we get envious of what other people are doing. We work harder to make our work look better. We make ourselves busier than we can because we want to leave a legacy and have a book written about us. And all our frantic busyness just means this. We do not enjoy the lot the Lord has given us. and We do not enjoy the work and the ministry that he's given us right now. I've met many an older minister and this is the advice they've given me. Enjoy your family, because I wish I'd spent more time with them as they grew up. I'm going to be honest, uh, this morning, this is something I struggle with. I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, this is something that every one of us struggles with from time to time. Envy can rob me of my contentment and joy in an instant. Because you end up one eye on what everyone else is doing, instead of just focusing on the lot the Lord has given you. And, and basically, social media just intensifies that envy, doesn't it? We see other people's happiness, and it makes us think right in front of us. Someone wrote this, and I find it really insightful. Any friend can share your sorrows and failures. It takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. Anyone can share your sorrows and failures. It takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. You see, we find it easy when someone's going through a hard time because it makes our lives look better than they are. Yes, we're trying to comfort them, but it also makes us feel a bit better, doesn't it? But it's far harder to be happier for someone when they have what you want. That thing comes up on Instagram. We double-click it. We say we like it, but we're thinking jerk. (laughs) It's one of those little sins, isn't it? It's one of those respectful sins that lies deep in our hearts. um, It lays hidden and it robs us of joy. We often say in our church, envy is far worse for the Christian. It's worse than heroin. It's worse than alcoholism because it's just deep in there and you don't notice it. 
It robs you of joy, and it can leave your relationships in tatters. Solomon says the opposite is true as well. Many people are motivated by envy. They overwork the expense of their friends, but others aren't even motivated at all. You see that in verse 5? The fool holds his hands, and he eats his own flesh. In other words, the fool doesn't work, and so ends up with nothing in the cupboards, and so has to eat himself. It's a lovely little image, isn't it? Ends up with no food, nothing. And that too is a form of selfishness, just living for yourself, not contributing to your neighbor, not contributing to society, just being a big fat parasite. So what are we supposed to do? The preacher said it's meaningless to overwork. It's meaningless to not work. So what can we do? Well, he says in verse 6, gives us the answer. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the winds. A handful of quietness doesn't mean go to a monastery and sit silently by yourself. The image is of someone who's contented with life. This person has quieted their soul. They have peace. They have joy. They have rest. Rather than demanding more, 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 this person accepts a lot that God has given them. Basically, Solomon is encouraging us here, and the Lord is encouraging us, chill out. Chill out. Be content with what God has given you. Work hard. Of course we've got to work hard. Of course we've got to push forward. It's not saying don't do that. But stop striving for the things that are out of reach and out of your control. Stop chasing. Stop envying. Be thankful for what God has given you right now. A guy called David Gibson writes this, live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you will have but which you actually cannot control at all. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you will have but which you actually cannot control at all. Enjoy it. Enjoy your kids. If you've got young kids, enjoy them. I know they're annoying. I know you want to wring their necks. I know they don't sleep at night. I know you have to discipline them again and again and again and change their diapers. But enjoy them. The time will soon go. Enjoy the life you have now instead of longing for that which you cannot control at all. And the antidote to envy is this. It's thankfulness, isn't it? When was the last time you just sat in your room and you just thought this, where would I be without Christ? Where would I be if God and his mercy has not intervened in my life? Where would I be? What are we doing? I know myself, I'll be self-centered, selfish, lazy, jealous, angry, lustful, and all over the place. I'm so thankful that Jesus saved me. When was the last time you just sat on your bed and said, Lord, thank you for my blessings? Thank you for this roof over my head when so many don't have it. Thank you for this food in my belly. Thank you for your work to do. Thank you for a gospel-centered church. So many people would love to have what we have right now and what you guys have in this church. Be thankful for what you have instead of moaning and complaining and getting bitter. doesn't help you. doesn't help your church. doesn't help your pastor. Be thankful. We have a friend in heaven a good father in heaven who cares for his children. Do you know what we deserve from his hand? Hell. 
We deserve his righteous and just judgment. And so anything he gives on top of his grace is grace. <laughs> it's a blessing. Finally, he has a third category, the lonely. Third person is found in verses 7 and 8. Let me read it again. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Basically, here's a, a man who's worked hard. He's chased riches. Think of an executive of a company who's worked long hours, beaten all competitors, taken over the company. He's got to the top, and yet he's still not satisfied with life. And worse than that, he's lonely. He's lonely. He's no friends or family because they abandoned him long ago as he pursued success and money. He's lived for himself, and so he's left by himself. He's the type of guy who could buy dinner for a whole restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. And that's what happens when we put our selfish goals and our selfish wants and our selfish needs above anyone else. When we look after number one, when we say, treat myself, treat myself, treat myself, we will end up alone. And we might be in the same house as other people. Matters. We end up with no real community. We're there on a Sunday, singing the songs of praying. We're hearing the sermon. We've got no f- real friends in the church. We've got no real community. We've got no real discipleship. And Solomon says that's a vanity and a chasing after the wind. Better is life lived in community. That's what he says in verses 9 to 12. The lesson is simple. Two is better than one. Three are better than two. He's encouraging us in these verses to live life in a community. He's not just talking about a wedding. People like to use this passage for marriage. He's not just talking about marriage. He's talking about all of life. He's talking about community. He's talking about church. He's talking about everything. He's saying there's power in number. Think about the imagery. He says there'll be a good reward for their toil. In other words, two heads are better than one. Because you can share responsibilities in business, can't you, when you've got two heads? You can forge new ideas together. And most importantly, you can have companionship as you work. Better to work with someone. Solomon says in verse 10, someone to pick us up. And basically, back in the day, if you were a businessman, you had to walk from town to town, and you walked at night. There were lots of potholes. It wasn't straight roads like you have in Canada, nicely paved. You had potholes and big ones, and you'd fall into it. So you had no one to pick you out. You were stuck in that hole until someone came along and you hoped it was someone good. Community is good, it says, because we keep warm. He says, again, if you think about a businessman traveling from town to town, there's no travel lodges or motels. Do you get the motels? Motels. To come stop in, you had to sleep on the side of the road. And so you make up the fire and your business partner would sleep next to you and you keep each other warm. Community is good because it offers protection. Again, in business back in the day, you travel from place to place. It was dangerous. You had robbers and bandits along the road. So you had someone with you. You had someone to have your back. And the image is clear here that Solomon is painting. 
life is better in community. If we strive after our own selfish desires, if we cut everyone else along the way, if we oppress people and live a life of envy, we will have no one to back us up at the end of the day. The value of life is this, not in what you earn, but whom you relate to. It's not what you buy, but it's what you give. Life lived in community is better all round. And here's a challenge for us as Christians and in the church. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we? We need them desperately. We need people to encourage us and refresh our souls when we're feeling weary in a spiritual walk. We need communities so that when Satan attacks us, which he always does, we have brothers and sisters who can pray with us. We need one another in the Christian walk because life is painful, isn't it? We're at an end of ourselves. We need our pastors and our brothers and sisters to come alongside us, to read the Bible, pray for us, and encourage us. We need the Christian around us because we often feel discouraged. We cannot do the Christian life alone. We cannot do it. That's one of the reasons we have church membership. I'm sure you practice it as well. We make that public commitment to care for one another, love each other, submit to each other, where we say two is better than one, where we confirm a three-chord strand is not easily broken. The question is, are you living in community? Or are you just turning up on a Sunday, driving in, listening to a sermon, you're straight out of the door, and out back to your home, back to your week, back on a Sunday? That's not community, is it? <laughs> That's you living your life by yourself. Are you a contributor or are you a parasite? Do you give or do you suck life? Here's the thing in community. Some of us love the taking, don't we? We love the taking, 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 but we don't do any giving. We like friendship when it's free and we don't have to answer to anyone, but that's not real community. Real community hurts. Real community means we put other people first. Real community costs us something. Real community takes commitment. Real community will cost you your independence. It will cost you your me time. See, people like the idea of community, don't they? They like to read Acts 2.42 and how the uh, first believers got together and they shared everything in common. Well, they don't tell you that community is annoying, isn't it? (laughs) Church is annoying. You will find your brothers and sisters, sometimes the best people in the world. And other times, you want to wring their necks. That's Church. Community living is beautiful, but it sucks at the same time. Listen to these words from Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
question for you, you need to ask yourself is this, how well are you living out the second commandment in your church and in your community? When was the last time you made a decision based on how it affects the church and not just your desires? When was the last time you sacrificed something that you love to go and help someone else out in the church? When was the last time you asked, how are we doing as a church, not just how am I doing? When was the last time you sacrificed some of your money on something you like to help someone else in need? See, some of us can be very selfish of our time, can't we? We can be very selfish of our money and our resources and our gifts. This is the, the thing that I get a lot. I can't live in community. Some of us use that excuse, don't we? I need my me time. And what ends up happening is that you invest in no one. Yes, I know introverts need some time by themselves, but it doesn't mean 24-7. <laughs> Locked up in a castle by yourself. Some of us just cut people out, don't we? We might just circle with a few friends, but we cut out the people in the church we find annoying. We avoid them at church. We smile at them on a Sunday. But they annoy the life out of us. Some of us are just plain annoying, aren't we? (laughs) No one wants to go near us because we're just so annoying. (laughs) Some of us are just living and pursuing our own selfish desires. Here's the biggest battle as a Christian in middle class Christian circles it's this comfort. That is idolatry. Some of us are the opposite, though, aren't we? We invest in everybody. <laughs> we're always striving for the next thing because we're motivated by envy. up chasing the to-do list again and again and again every day. We're always striving to get jobs done. We're always working. We're always studying. We're always doing ministry. We are over busy. So Solomon said that is folly as well. He would ask you, what are you living for? Who is it all for? Are we doing it for ourselves? And our own glory, or are we doing it because we're thinking about others around us? Here's a radical question for those of us who like to be over busy. What tasks and jobs could you cut out in your week so that you can help your relationships to flourish? What could we do so that we can be more involved with people's lives? Solomon is saying we need each other. The Bible is saying we need each other. Jesus is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And although community is difficult, and although community is hard and costs us everything, it's a blessing. But woe to the person who rejects community. Woe to the person who thinks they can do the Christian walk by themselves. Because we'll end up in Satan's backyard. We'll end up in his evil hands with no one to pick us up, no one to encourage us, no one to read the Bible with us, no one to pray with us. Let me end with this. This passage points us to Christ as every passage does. The comfort the oppressed need is in Christ. The contentment we strive for as envious people is in Christ. The community we're created to have is found in Christ. But here's the ironic thing about Christ. He lived his life for others completely and wholeheartedly, but he ended up alone on the cross. 
He was abandoned. He was rejected by his own people. He was betrayed by his closest friends. And he was forsaken by his father. He was alone. He was oppressed. He had no friend to hold him up or to warm him or to encourage him on the cross. And he did that so that our relationships with Christ could be restored and so our relationship with each other could be restored as well. He restores the brokenness in our most important relationship with God the Father so that we can be in relationship with each other. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you've just been turning up to church again and again and again. You're not actually converted. You've never been born again. You don't know Christ. And you are striving after joy and peace and contentment and rest. You're looking around the church thinking, all these guys seem to have it together and I don't. Maybe you've been abused and oppressed recently. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. This passage says this. The Bible says this. There's hope in Christ. There is rest in Christ. There's contentment in Christ. There's joy in Christ. There's reconciliation in Christ. If only you repent of your sins and put your trust in him. For those of us who are Christians, let us ask that question. Not just how am I doing, how are we doing? Let's hold out Christ to each other. Let's love each other. Let's lay aside our envy and our selfishness. And let's honor the Lord together. And by the way that we love each other in community, others will know that we are his disciples. Amen? Amen.